episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by water. Do you wish streams were colder and drinkable? Try water today. What do minerals and defense have in common besides both appearing on the Goop website? Turns out, the latest climate news story. Good Wednesday morning, I'm Ethan Brown, and this is Tip of the Iceberg, where I will break down some environmental news and then answer a question from our listeners on the air. Submit questions via Patreon, email, or social media. Patron questions go to the front of the line, so sign up at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. After pressure from both Democratic and Republican senators, President Biden is invoking the Defense Production Act to encourage domestic production of the minerals used in batteries for electric vehicles and long-term energy storage, minerals such as lithium, nickel, cobalt, and graphite. The Defense Production Act dates back to 1950, and it gives presidents the power to prioritize the development of specific materials for national production during an emergency such as the one we're in now, which is apparently the Great Mechanical Pencil Shortage. But all jokes aside, we talked two weeks ago about the short-term implications of the war on Ukraine at the gas pump and some of the misconceptions there. For example, U.S. refineries were set up before the fracking boom, so they refined conventionally drilled oil, which we call sour crude. But in the U.S., the oil we frack is called sweet crude. These are surprisingly not new flavors of Bud Light seltzer. So we actually buy sour crude from other countries, which we refine here, and then we sell sweet crude to other countries, which they refine there. That means ramping up domestic oil production would not have really affected our gas prices. What I did not know at the time is that the U.S. keeps a strategic petroleum reserve, where we store a whole bunch of that sour crude, Sort of like how I have a strategic Kraft mac and cheese reserve. You know, for mac and cheese emergencies. And now, the White House is releasing oil from the reserves. And I hope it shocked no one that I do not know everything. This is why when people ask if I'd ever consider going into politics, I cower behind a bookshelf. I do not trust myself to know the perfect solution to all of these issues. Releasing some oil from these reserves should offer some small temporary relief at the pump. Not back to normal, but a nudge in the right direction. And I stand by what I said two weeks ago, that environmentally, it's a little counterintuitive to poo-poo that relief in the short term. But long term, there had to be a better answer to this energy dilemma. Our national security interests demand one, a safe and healthy global climate, and two, not necessarily energy independence, but getting rid of energy dependence. Does that make sense? It's like a healthy relationship. 
When you're in a codependent relationship, the goal isn't to be single, it's to be seeing them and other people. Wait, I guess that analogy doesn't work. But in this case, we can participate in global trade, that's a good thing. But we don't want to be beholden to just a few countries that are fortunate enough to have combustible black goop in the ground. Now, I have said solar panels and wind turbines contain minerals, which at the moment come from other countries. That's true for batteries as well, even though the Declaration of Independence clearly says batteries included. The U.S. imported more than half its supply of at least 46 minerals in 2020, and all of its supply of 17 of them, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. The difference is those minerals are needed in manufacturing. You can continue using your current solar panels and wind turbines and batteries if you're in conflict with a country who sells you those minerals. You just can't make new ones. That's not the case with oil or gas, where if they don't give it to you, you literally have nothing to burn to generate energy. It's like if your friend who's giving you the answers to the test invites you to play Dungeons and Dragons. You either sit through eight hours of a game that makes no sense, or you say no and all your test answers immediately dry up. So the question to the United States and the whole world was, all right, long term, secure energy, secure climate, what are you going to do? In addition to the risk of global conflict, Europe recently committed to cutting fossil fuel combustion by 40% by 2030, so it also might get more expensive to buy minerals for clean energy on the global market. So in the US, ramping up these minerals for batteries under the Defense Production Act was the path they chose. And again, senators from both sides pushed for this. As any longtime listeners know, common ground is one of my favorite things, so I was glad to see that. It goes one, sitcoms, two, sports, three, common ground, four, that Toyota ad with Tommy Leslie and Rashida Jones. The Defense Production Act is not a case of the U.S. government stepping in to produce these minerals themselves, as much as I'd love to see a bunch of White House interns start mining lithium. Rather, they'll be creating a pot of money that will go towards surveying the amount of these minerals we can obtain in the United States, increasing production at domestic mines, encouraging waste reclamation, and supporting feasibility studies for new projects. The idea is, if the U.S. can be somewhat self-sufficient with these minerals, somewhere between independent and dependent, that would be a boost to our national security, and at the same time, provide cheap, clean, renewable energy. Win, 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 if I counted that right. Despite being bipartisan, this Defense Production Act move ought to be met with a bit of caution, and the good news is policymakers appear to be aware of that. First off, the money had better be spent well, that's our taxes. And on top of that, these mineral mines are very often on indigenous land, and these communities, or any community for that matter, has the right to be consulted and heard. It's important that this mining proceeds ethically, and that also means ensuring the process is safe, healthy, environmentally friendly, and fun. They could have rewards for the miner with the most minerals, or have themed game nights and play Minopoly, Minecala. Minies checkers. 
It sounds like an oxymoron, but environmentally conscious mining can be done. Not all mining is bad, despite the reputation Bitcoin has given it, but certainly good things to keep an eye on. But when I look at this global rush to clean energy seemingly as a direct result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, what I find fascinating is that even though the war wasn't about fossil fuels, there are all these fossil fuel dynamics in the background that explain so much of what's going on. The Ukrainian Hydrometeorological Institute's Dr. Svetlana Krakowska, who some call the leading climate scientist in Ukraine, even went as far as to say, human-induced climate change and the war on Ukraine have the same roots, fossil fuels, and our dependence on them. I'll explain in the next segment why I don't love some of the comparisons between climate change and this war, but I do think Dr. Krakowska's quote is very compelling, so let's dig into it. Since the Russian government owns the country's biggest natural gas company, biggest oil company, and the only pipeline company, it actually gets a significant amount of non-taxpayer money. Oil and gas account for 30% of the Russian federal budget revenue. When oil and gas prices go up, so does that number. Last October, unexpectedly high oil and gas prices allowed the Russian government to take in almost $500 million per day in fossil fuel revenue. Oil prices were also high when Russia annexed Crimea in 2014, and that was then an all-time peak in 2008 when Russia invaded Georgia. Some experts have pointed out that this dynamic sort of means buying fossil fuels from Russia is funding their war effort. You can't help but wonder if Russia would be doing these invasions if they weren't coming into this fossil fuel money. A smaller group of experts take this a step further. There's an idea called the resource curse that argues countries with an abundance of natural resources, such as fossil fuels or certain minerals, have less economic growth, less democracy, or worse development outcomes than countries with fewer natural resources. Almost like how I have the film and television degree curse, where I have a growing podcast but little to no social life. It's fine, though. Everything's fine. Data from the International Monetary Fund classifies 51 countries as resource-rich, and 29 of those countries are low- and lower-middle income, and we've seen so many examples just thinking about fossil fuel countries. So I get why this resource curse idea is so compelling. You'd think resource-rich countries would skew higher income, if anything. Some have used the analogy of lottery winners who struggle to manage their newfound wealth. That said, there's really good arguments against the resource curse idea, too, that suggest a lot of other factors are at play, and I personally have to lean in that direction. Just because two things are correlated does not mean one causes the other, right? Just because every time I cook, the sink ends up full of dishes doesn't mean I cause the dirty sink. But this case of Russia and fossil fuels does seem to suggest over and over that there's something to be said for the resource curse, so I figured I'd put it out there and let you all think on it. If any of you have a curse, drop a comment, let me know. Maybe we could hang out sometime. I have one free hour on Tuesdays from 5 to 6. The irony of this whole thing, though, 
is whether or not you want to call it a cycle, this fossil fuel dynamic might be forever changed as a result of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It isn't just long-term strategic changes like Europe's fossil fuel pledge or the US implementing the Defense Production Act for minerals for batteries. In fact, Russia had been working for a few years on a second gas pipeline from Russia to Germany called Nord Stream 2. Not to be confused with Nordstrom 2, which is similar to Nordstrom Rack, but they only sell things in pairs for toddler ballerinas. Need two tutus for your Todd Hair Terrible 2s? Buy two, get two for just two more today! Call 2222222222 extension 2. Anyway, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline cost $11 billion to build. It was completed last September, but Germany halted the certification process last November, citing legal challenges. However, that was when Russia was amassing tens of thousands of troops along the Ukraine border. Then in February, Russia invaded and Germany halted the certification process. I also can't help but notice that Nord Stream 1 travels through Ukraine and Nord Stream 2 does not. So I don't know how big a role Nord Stream 2 plays in all this, but it certainly feels like, at the very least, Russia's invasion has lost them a major source of future business, and the opportunity to team up with Nordstrom 2. These fossil fuel dynamics are really intricate, and I feel like all I've learned in researching this episode is how little I know. I'll probably need to read 20 books and get back to you. But I hope this sparks some conversation, and maybe the use of the Defense Production Act could make some of these fossil fuel dynamics feel a little closer to home. Whether or not you agree with the decision is irrelevant. There are always many ways to handle any political issue. But the move did make clear that the United States sees fossil fuel reliance as a national security threat. Now that national security priorities are aligned with climate priorities, we can work to make sure our game of Mainkala ends with a win-win. Do you love sticking your tongue out for snowflakes in the winter but wish you could do it all year round? If so, water's for you. Water is all over the world, and in some parts of the world, it literally falls out of the sky just for you. And here I was just drinking year-old Pepto-Bismol I found in my cabinet. Water. Because as they say, hydrate or dihydrate. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to Tip of the Iceberg. It's time for Ask Me Anything, where our listeners get a chance to ask me any environmental questions they may have. Submit questions on our Patreon, email, or social media. Questions from patrons go to the front of the line, so be sure to sign up today at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Today's Ask Me Anything comes from Katerina Soto, who asks, With the conflict in Ukraine raising concerns about nuclear warfare, what specifically would a major nuclear war do to our environment? Thanks for the question, Katerina. I've been thinking about your question for a few weeks now because my first thought was, Wow, nuclear war is on the table and you're thinking about the environment? 
I feel like the environment would start to drop on our collective priority list when we think about nuclear wars, so this question honestly made me happy. I will say, and this isn't anything to do with your question, I don't get the sense you were thinking along these lines, but I saw some climate folks say things along the lines of, nuclear war is the only other risk on par with climate change. No, it's not. Climate change is very concerning, of course. It has and will continue to lead to the loss of life, money, health, justice, ecosystems, food, water, resources, the list goes on. But that's gradual, and that's different depending on where in the world you are, whereas nuclear war is a lot more immediate and a lot, lot worse. Again, I know your question wasn't suggesting the two are on par, but I did see that sentiment elsewhere, and I had to get that off my chest. So first, I want to talk about the actual risk of nuclear war. And keep in mind, I'm not an expert in this. I did learn a lot from doing some research. I think it provides important context, and I just found it really interesting. But know that I'm learning with all of you. So I heard this analogy for nuclear war in a podcast interview on 538 with James Acton, the co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I definitely recommend that podcast episode if you're into this stuff. James said, Imagine a game of chess, but instead of it being win or lose, you can either win big, you can win small, or you can win somewhere in between. If you lose but have about the same number of pieces left on the board, you just suffer some mild embarrassment. If your opponent takes all your pieces and just thrashes you, you go bankrupt, lose your job, and get forcefully dragged out of your home. Now imagine that underneath the chessboard is a whole bunch of dynamite, and you and your opponent each have a button, And at any point in time, you can hit the button and blow the whole thing up, you and your opponent. Now, you don't know what your opponent's threshold is. You don't know if they're willing to lose big or if they'd rather blow the whole thing up. So there's this line you walk of wanting to win, but not wanting to win too big. And that's sort of the line world leaders have to walk when there's a risk of nuclear war. So how high is that risk exactly? Again, I'm not an expert, but Russia and Ukraine have both been starting to negotiate terms to end the war, and while they're pretty far apart on a lot of things, there are some bits of optimism. Russia has reportedly eased up on its original demand of regime change and demilitarization, and Ukraine has put forth proposals to commit to neutrality and not seek NATO membership in exchange for security guarantees. Most wars end with an agreement that stops the war, not an utter annihilation of the other side. So all of this is worth keeping in mind when we talk about the risk of all-out nuclear war. The other possibility is that crossing the nuclear threshold doesn't mean an all-out apocalyptic nuclear war. For example, Many experts have said one course of action could be a so-called demonstration strike over the Black Sea. That probably wouldn't injure or kill anyone, but it would certainly be nuclear war. That's still scary. So there's a lot of layers to this, and I'm not well-versed enough to say all-out nuclear war is unlikely, but every expert I read seems to say it is unlikely, or at the very least, far from imminent. The nuclear dynamic that does feel more imminent, though, 
is Russia's attack of Ukrainian nuclear power plants. Zelensky said no country had ever shot at nuclear blocks before. Presumably, Russia is aiming to cut power for Ukrainians, not to cause a nuclear meltdown at a reactor. That said, cutting power is really bad too, and that made me think a bit. When we talk about how great it is that nuclear is so land efficient, I don't think I'd thought of that as a con before. Certainly it's easier to take over a whole country's nuclear reactors than all their wind turbines or something. So that's worth thinking about, depending on the country. But the other concern is that if you turn a nuclear power plant off, it still needs to be cooled in the cooling tower or the spray ponds, and that requires electricity. The preferred way to get that electricity is the grid. If the grid fails, nuclear reactors have an emergency diesel generator on site. But if the fuel cannot cool itself, there could be a meltdown that releases radiation into the environment. Again, it doesn't appear like Russia is trying to cause a nuclear meltdown at one of these power plants, and a lot of things would have to go wrong for that to happen. But when you consider their reckless behavior, taking over the infrastructure, shooting at people at the plants, etc., you can imagine the probability of a meltdown going up. Nuclear reactors are not built with the idea that another country might try to take it over during a war. So now that I've given you about 20 qualifiers, let me actually answer the question of what a nuclear war would do to the environment. There are actually researchers who model this, and this is a really complex question given all the uncertainties involved. According to Brian Toon at University of Colorado Boulder, an American submarine carries about 96 warheads, and they're each about 10 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb that killed 100,000 people in 1945. That means an American submarine could potentially kill 100 million people if it launched all its bombs toward cities, and the Russians could do the same. But that's where the environmental impact comes in. In an all-out U.S.-Russia war that spends much of the nuclear arsenal, 150 million tons of soot from the burning cities would rise into the stratosphere and block sunlight. Ground temperatures would fall to Ice Age conditions within weeks and destroy agriculture, plummeting by more than 18 degrees Fahrenheit in three years. Billions of people all over the world would starve to death. There's only enough food in a city for about six days, and there's only enough grain in global storage to feed the world's population for about 60 days. Refineries are gone, power lines go down, transportation goes down, wildlife is killed, wildfires can spread, trade winds would change, the loss of vegetation would accelerate wind and water erosion. The cool temperatures would lead oceans to lose their ability to absorb carbon, causing the pH to skyrocket, which would destroy coral reefs and marine ecosystems. A 2009 paper in Environmental Conservation contends that an area devastated by nuclear warfare would in time recover by the natural processes of ecological succession, but far more slowly and more unpredictably than following other forms of ecological disruption. Alright, now, deep breath. Let's take a step back. That's why I said all that about how that scenario is really not imminent. Every world leader knows all that, and they take it very seriously. 
But how about a much smaller nuclear strike? The potential for temperatures to plunge really depends on the amount of soot that gets into the air following the strike. It really depends. But you can imagine anywhere from no impact to a very, very small fraction of all the things I said above. Sadly, there is not a middle ground where a nuclear strike cools the climate and we can shrug off climate change but not have any other consequences. Lastly, what about if there were a nuclear meltdown at a power plant? If you go back to our nuclear energy episode, you'll find these maybe aren't as terrifying or likely as they're sometimes made out to be, but they would certainly cause quite a bit of environmental damage. Plants and animals within the affected area would take up radioactive particles, which would move through the food chain. Radiation within the soil would run off into waterways and contaminate fish and other aquatic organisms. This causes increases in wildlife mortality, decreases in reproductive success, and DNA damage. In some ways, these ecosystems can bounce back at reasonable timescales, but you can imagine part of that being that people have to abandon the area after the meltdown, which allows nature to take its course. There's also an increased risk of cancer and other negative health outcomes for people exposed to large concentrations of radioactive particles, though it's worth keeping in perspective that according to the World Nuclear Association, Chernobyl in 1986 is the only nuclear accident in history that had radiation-related fatalities. The UN Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation puts the death toll from Chernobyl at less than 100. So there is potential for a lot of bad damage, but when a meltdown at a power plant occurs, it would not be world-ending, and it would have to be quite a historic slip-up to actually cause fatalities. Bottom line, the more I dug into this, the calmer it made me feel. I could have just thrown those really scary worst-case scenario numbers at you, but when I learned how world leaders, even adversaries, think about nuclear war and what it actually means to cross that threshold, knowing that information made me feel less overwhelmed than just assuming the worst. I am not downplaying how bad nuclear war would be and how much leaders should work to avoid that possibility, but for it to get really apocalyptic... It has to get really out of hand. Thanks for the question, Katerina. Sorry I ran a bit long there. And thanks to all of you for listening to Tip of the Iceberg. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin, like one of our latest patrons, Shannon O'Lear. Thank you so much for joining, Shannon. We really appreciate the support. Shannon and all our patrons get merch, bonus content, and their questions move to the front of the line for Tip of the Iceberg. So if you want my take on any climate stuff, Shannon, definitely let me know. Once again, The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the hosts and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you on Friday for a deep dive on environmental. Mentalism.